All right. So, a few weeks ago, we started in our uh, new series, uh, Distinctive Series is what we're calling it. Um, and we've been moving through and talking about those things that, uh, at the way, those things that we do or we believe that actually make us distinct from other churches. Um, and, and that may mean that we um, separate, or as we learned about last week, we'll actually network or partner with other churches because of these things. And so uh, today we're going to continue in this series, and we'll actually be looking at the sacraments. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 through 20, the Great Commission, as all of you know. Um, and if you want to flip back then a few pages to Matthew 26, um, and maybe put your finger there, we're going to get there eventually. Um, but I want to, these are two passages that I think are good to, to start with as we begin talking about the sacraments uh, and what we'll be doing, uh, looking at the views that we take here at the way as we go through those things. So um, let's pray real quick again um, to get myself calmed down because I am nervous. And so I want to pray to get calmed down a little bit before I get going, all right? So let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, God, we thank you for the chance, God, to, to hear what you have to say from your word to us, God. Those things that um, nourish our souls, those things that speak to us, God, um, through your Holy Spirit. I pray that today you speak through me. God, give me the words to say. I pray that um, in all things you get the glory. Calm me. Uh, just speak through me as, we, as I work through these things, God, that I've studied. Um, and I, I pray that it touches the hearts of the people here as it has me. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, on October 31st, uh, 1517, way back in the 16th century, a guy, a, a guy, a guy named Martin Luther who was a Catholic monk and a professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, walked up to the doors of the Wittenberg Church um, and did something that I think none of us would do today, and he nailed a 95 theses, his 95 theses that he had written, to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Now, these 95 theses, this is the way it was actually done in the day, in the age, when there was something they disagreed with, they wrote out all their statements, those things that they believed in, um, and they actually nailed it to the door of the church as kind of a proclamation that this, this is where I stand. I don't completely agree with where we're at, and this is where I stand, and this is why. So in these 95 theses, Martin Luther, um, what he did in doing that actually sparked what we know today to be the Protestant Reformation. And so um, what happened is, is he, Martin Luther looked at the Catholic Church, and, and he saw these things that, that they were doing that he, he didn't completely agree with. And his, the Bible just spoke to him in a different way. And so what he did is, in these 95 theses, talked about all these different things that he, honestly, he disagreed with from the Catholic Church and why, um, whether it be doctrinally or practically, whatever. And that, that's what the 95 theses were. Uh, and of all the things that were talked about in the Protestant Reformation, and there was a bunch of different things that went on during that, um, actually one of the most defined and well-argued things that were talked about was actually the sacraments, surprisingly. And because there was all the other issues that were dealt with in the Protestant Reformation actually had been dealt with in prior years, the sacraments had not. And so when the Reformers debated about the sacraments, it actually was probably some of the most emotionally charged and some of the most heated debates in dealing with the sacraments. Um, and the reason for this was is because the Lord's Supper in specific for the church at the time was the center of worship for the church and had actually been lifted to some place of uh, grace-giving power. 
And so for somebody to come in and say that this thing that all of worship is surrounded by and defined by, it may not be completely correct, just caused a lot of problems because in all honesty, that meant everything people knew to be worship in the church is kind of getting changed and moved around. And, and people just really did not like that. And sadly, because of this, because of all of this going on, even between the Protestant reformers at the time, there was division uh, about their views on the sacraments in specific. And I think it's important here to note as we get into this that the issue of, and in specific, the mode of how we do the sacraments, so how we take the Lord's Supper and the way we do baptism, those things, we would hold those in an open hand. We would call those an open-handed doctrine. And what I mean by that is here at the way we would hold two different types of doctrines. There would be close-handed and open-handed. Open-handed or close-handed being those things that we would hold on to with a closed hand. Those things that we would not give up on. Things like the inerrancy of Scripture and, and Christ being the only way of salvation. We will not change our views or our stance on that ever. Those are foundational to who we are as Christians in specific in this church. But then there's also those doctrines and those practices that we would hold in an open hand. And those are things that we would not divide with people over. We would disagree with them, but we wouldn't divide with them or um, not be able to fellowship with other Christians because of them. This would be things like church government, how other churches do church government. We do an elder-led uh, church, which Seth talked about a couple weeks ago. A lot of churches in the area are, are not like that. They, they have a board of deacons, and, and that's, that's fine. We would not divide with churches over that or something like the way we do the sacraments. We're not going to divide with the church or other people because of how they do the sacraments. Now, there are some things as we talk about the sacraments, there's some beliefs that, that surround those that actually are in opposition to the truth of the gospel, that actually act in opposition to those things. And those things we will not, we will not stand on. And, and we'll take a pretty hard line on that. But we'll talk about those in a little bit. However, however, overall, the issue of the modes of the sacraments is nothing to separate or divide over, uh, but they are a place for us to discuss and talk with other believers about. Um, so as we go on, I want to define what a sacrament is. I, I think it's important for us to understand what that is before we get any further. Um, and so a good basic statement for us as a church to understand what the sacraments are is they are signs of grace not a means of grace. Uh, John Calvin, who was actually one of the Protestant reformers at the time with Martin Luther, he, he wrote a catechism, which is just a bunch of questions and answers that new believers or, or babies and, and children as they grew up in the church learned to memorize, and they heard these things so that they could understand the doctrines that the church held, and it, it made it really easy for them to learn and memorize these things. And so John Calvin, he wrote one of these, uh, and it was the question in specific was, what is a sacrament? And I think he does an awesome job of breaking this out. And this is what he says, um, yeah, in his catechism, this is what he says. A sacrament is an external sign that testifies to God's goodwill to his people, serving as a symbol and a reminder of the spiritual grace God gives, and also sealing and confirming the promises of God in the gospel. Uh, this is really and honestly seriously important as we begin to understand and look at the sacraments and the different views on the sacraments. These things that we do perform, these traditions, they are external signs only. That's it. But 
There's something God has given us to help us grow in our faith and to keep us remembering the gospel. These sacraments are visible displays of the works and the beauty of the gospel, and in them we are continually given a glimpse into the wonder of God's work in us as Christians through Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to look at, first in specific, we're going to look at baptism. Now the Catholic Church recognizes there are seven different sacraments that they hold to as a church. Most Protestant churches at large, including us at the way we only have two, uh, being baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, they're also known as ordinances. Um, a lot of Baptists use the word ordinance. Uh, same thing. So we're, we're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And just as in the Reformation today, there are a bunch of views that deal with all of these, both of these sacraments. There's a bunch of different views on how people take them, what they're supposed to mean. And, and my goal is today, my hope is today, I want to be able to share with you those views. I don't want you guys to, to not know what they are, but I'm going to share them with you and then share with you where we stand as the way and why. So, um, in specific, I want to start with Matthew 28, 19 through 20. I asked you to flip there earlier. Um, this is where we're going to begin. And this is Jesus speaking. It's a great commission. I think most of us know what it is. I mean, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> now, this verse, these verses in specific don't give us any real specifics on how to baptize, what to do. But if there's anything that we can agree on across the board... We can say one thing in specific. Jesus commands us to be baptized and to baptize. If there's nothing else that in all the views we can agree with across the board, one thing we understand is Jesus has commanded us to be baptized and to baptize. And so we, above all, follow these sacraments because Christ has commanded it of us. Not because it separates us, not because it makes us different, but because Christ has commanded it of us. And so we do these things in obedience to him. And I think it's important to note uh, this before we even get into it. So now going on into the three different views of baptism. So the first view that we're going to look at is uh, regenerative baptism. Um, in this view, people typically see this as a saving act. So typically infants are baptized and they are seen as this, this baptism actually saves them and gives them new life. Uh, this is not an evangelical view. This is not something we at the way would hold to because from this view, a person is claiming something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross is what saves people. If you remember back to Galatians, uh, a couple months ago we went through that here. Um, Paul in Galatians is spending a lot of time talking about what the Judaizers are preaching to these people in Galatia. And most of the Judaizers are preaching that you have to be saved and be circumcised to really love Jesus. That you can't really have a relationship with him if you don't follow the Jewish stuff as well as the Christian stuff. That it doesn't really happen that way. And Paul, point blank, says that's wrong. I mean, the, there's, there's no way around it. If you read Galatians, he's a lot more forthright about it than, than I am. But he says, no way, no how. Jesus is it. Faith in Christ alone is what saves you. And that's all that there is. And so... This view, um, we, we would not hold to. Je I want, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I want to share this with you. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't find salvation in anything other than Christ alone. And so uh, that's the first view I want to look at. Second view I want to look at is pedo baptism or infant baptism. 
Um, in this view, babies are baptized and accepted into the covenant community of the church. It doesn't save them, but they're baptized as infants to accept them into the covenant community of the church. Uh, this is a view that's held by a lot of evangelicals, uh, prod- or many Protestants. So you got the Presbyterians and the Methodists follow this. A lot of Reformed traditions, the Lutherans. This is not something that's not practiced um, at large. But this, uh, the difficulty with this view is that, as we defined a few weeks ago, Seth talked about this as we talked about membership in the church. Um, a member of the church is actually someone who's been saved by Christ. That we recognize membership in the church um, at large, the universal church, as acceptance of Christ in your life as your Savior above all things. And so, as an infant, it's difficult to show this. And so I, I would say this view holds a lot of difficulties. Um, and the last view that we're going to look at is that of credo-baptism, uh, adult baptism, or, or believer's baptism. And this view states that baptism is an act after someone has accepted Christ and is an outward sign showing that you have been saved and are now free to live life for Christ. Um, here at the way, we would actually hold to this view. Uh, and there's uh, many reasons that we would hold to this, and it kind of follows the typical pattern in the New Testament. Uh, there's a bunch of verses I'm going to show you real quick. Uh, that kind of point this out, just the order that it goes. Acts 2.41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8.12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 10.47-48 says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then asked him to remain for some days. So we see the pattern in the New Testament is people that believe, they hear the word, they believe, and then they're baptized. That, that typically is the pattern that we see followed throughout the New Testament. In addition, Paul talks about in Galatians, like I was talking about uh, earlier, he actually says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Um, and, and I'll read to you as well, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul seems to believe or think, uh, from these verses we can inference, that these people that are being baptized, that uh, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, that people have shown themselves to at least at some level be living a life for Christ. That these people are showing to be walking in the newness of life, like Romans says, the verses in Romans. So these people are recognizing, uh, we see in people that have claimed to accept Christ a change in their life, and then they're baptized. And so here at The Way, um, this is why we hold to a view of believer's baptism. Uh, there's a couple other reasons. Uh, the word baptize in the Greek New Testament is baptizo, is what it uh, actually is. And it actually means um, full immersion. I, I skipped a little bit of my points, so I'm going to go back just a second because I skipped over some stuff. So uh, the way we baptize, the people we baptize, are those that are believers. Now, there's another issue, and that's what I just started on, in talking about how people are baptized, the mode of baptism. And there's two different views on this as well. Uh, like I said, there's a bunch of views. But there is the um, full immersion view, 
And then there's the effusionist view, which is sprinkling or pouring. Now, uh, we at The Way, we hold to an immersionist view. We, we, as you've seen, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we baptized. We put them completely under the water, is what I mean. And we bring them back, back up out of there. And we do that for a few different reasons. First, the Greek word baptizo. And I'm back to the point that I had skipped over. We're back to here. Baptizo means actually to fully immerse, to dip or to plunge into the water. Uh, in addition, Romans 6, 3-4, which I read just a second ago, um, and Colossians 2.12, which says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Uh, these verses don't give us a, a specific explanation on how to baptize, but we recognize from these verses that baptism represents or symbolizes to us in the same way that Christ died and was buried in the ground and was raised three days later, we too are showing to be of the same thing, that we have accepted Christ's death as our own. That Christ's death on the cross replaces our death to sin. And so as we are baptized, we're recognizing and symbolizing to the whole world that we have died and we are being raised again by the power of God. And we're being raised by the glory of the Father, it says in Romans 6 through 4, that we too might walk in the newness of life. So full immersion, and we, we do this because the Scripture seems to point to the fact that it is a something that's done completely under the water. Uh, many times in the Scriptures, the people that are baptized, you hear the, the phrase afterwards, and they came up out of the water. In addition, the Scripture points to the fact that baptism represents us going into the water and coming back out to represent His death and burial and our own and resurrected life in Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those things that is what I would call an open-handed issue. This is not something that we're going to debate over because the other view, a fusionist view, um, we don't hold to that, but we're not going to separate with people who do practice this. And I want to share with you this view because I think it's important to understand where they're coming from as well. And actually, I think that their view on it is, is really good, actually, and I, I don't see why we can't actually recognize this as well as we do this. And so um, I want to share with you that, that the effusionist view actually is representing the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the believer. That when they sprinkle or they pour water over people, which is what they do, they're actually representing or trying to show what the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the new believer. Now, charismatic views aside, all Christians, I think we can agree that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And that He overtakes us and overcomes us and gives us a new power to live a new life to God in Christ. Um, what's really important about understanding this and seeing this point of view is that the word baptism, actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, has a second meaning. Um, and this, it says this. Um, it's to bring into complete subjection to an influence or to imbue with virtues. It refers to an influence which one thing may exercise over another. So as we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes on us and literally baptizes us in His presence and from then on influences our thoughts and our actions to be like He wants. So as you hear baptism in the Spirit and you see this, I think it's important for us to recognize this as Christians. Uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who's a theologian, says it really, really well. He says, What is termed the baptism by the Spirit is His mighty undertaking by which He joins the individual believer to Christ's body and thus to Christ Himself as the head of the body. Because of this great achievement on the part of the Spirit, 
the believer is from that moment in Christ and is thus brought under the influence of his headship. No influence could be more transforming, more purifying relative to position, or more vital to its outworking than that engendered by a removal from the fallen headship of Adam into the exalted headship of Christ. There are a lot of things today that, that influence us, whether it be Justin Bieber, Chick-fil-A. I don't know if Justin Bieber influences any of you. I'm sorry if he does. Um, no, just kidding. Chick-fil-A, uh, maybe your political views, uh, television shows, the Internet, whatever it may be, there are a lot of things out there in this culture today that are vying for our attention. And whether we recognize it or not, those things are influencing our lives. Um, they, they may change the way you dress, the way you talk, what you listen to, the truths you believe and you hold to. Um, in some way or another, we at some level recognize them to hold some important importance and truth for our lives because we fashion our lives in light of them. But when we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, when we come to know Christ, the third member of the Trinity, God himself comes to live inside of us. And because of his working in our lives, we are then influenced to live a life for Christ in the power of God. That, that this view is showing that when the Holy Spirit comes onto us, we're able to then actually live a life free for Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we would still live a life in sin. Everything we would do would be marred by our sin nature. But when the Holy Spirit comes onto us, we are able to live a life to God in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. And so this view, and I think it's a beautiful thing to recognize that when the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes us, we're then influenced by God himself to live a life for Christ. And so whether we pour, sprinkle, immerse, we recognize that in baptism, we're sharing Christ's death and his resurrection. And we're also recognizing that the Holy Spirit has come onto us and is now influencing our life to live one for Christ. Um, there's a few other things that baptism actually symbolizes for us. I want to share those with you real quick. First of all, as I've kind of shared with you already, baptism reminds us and shows us the atonement of Christ. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. I have a bunch of verses today, so um, they're all up there on the, the screen. I should have told you before. There's a bunch of scripture we're going through today because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So um, Colossians 2, 11 through 15 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ, in his life here on earth, lived a life of suffering. He actually talks about it in Luke. He says, I have a baptism, speaking to the disciples, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The cross was Christ's ultimate baptism. And the, our baptism reminds us that Christ suffered our judgment on the cross, that he took the pain and the suffering 
and the judgment that we deserved on himself on the cross and made peace with God for us. And baptism just reminds us of that fact. Secondly, baptism reminds us of our union with Christ. Um, I've read it a bunch already, Romans 6, 1 through 5. Um, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Through faith, we vicariously participate in all that Jesus did. And we recognize that faith in Christ gains us these things. And baptism is just a symbol, an outward sign of grace, of what the grace that God has shown us in our own life. And uh, thirdly, baptism reminds us of our union with the church. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> and lastly, um, and you can see it from all of the verses that we've talked about, baptism reminds us of our consecration to God. That in baptism we are showing ourselves to be set apart for worship and service to God and the God of our salvation. We are marked out from the world and sealed as belonging to God. Now sadly... When we think of baptism, a lot of times we just think of it as this one-time deal. And it is just practiced one time. That as a believer comes to recognize that Christ has saved him, he's baptized. And we don't baptize over and over again. Uh, Christ's death covered all our sins once for all, Hebrews says. And so we, we baptize once. But the thing about baptism is, is that it is an easy sign for us to point back to forever at what Christ has done in our life. That though we may not be baptized again, we can continually look back to the baptism that we had and remember the fact that Christ saved us. And remember the fact that he atoned for our sins and that we're united with him now and the church and we're consecrated to live a life for him. And so maybe you're not baptized over and over again, but it gives us a place forever to look back to. It gives us something to remind us that baptism is not a sacrament that just sits by itself and is one time only thing, but it's something for us to continually remind us of the gospel and what it's done in our lives. Now, where baptism uh, is, may mark the beginning of our relationship with Christ, uh, the Lord's Supper, the next sacrament we're going to talk about, is our continual reminder of our fellowship with Him. Um, if you still have your finger in, the, in your Bible, Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 29. We're going to read it real quick. This is a passage of Jesus um, at the Passover meal, actually, actually initiating the Lord's Supper. Uh, and this is what he says. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, now, I want to give you a quick look at three different views that are typically held about the Lord's Supper. Uh, first of all, being transubstantiation or like the real physical presence. And what I mean by that is that uh, people believe that actually as they partake of the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine actually become 
Christ's literal body and his blood as they eat of it. Uh, a lot of this comes from John when he's talking, Jesus is talking to his disciples um, and saying that you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. Uh, and so this view also believes that as the sacrament is taken, it actually brings with it some kind of saving grace. That this literally helps save you from your sins, that partaking of the Lord's Supper does. Um, there's nothing biblically to back this up, and we've already kind of talked about it with regenerative baptism. Um, and so I'm not going to cover that all again. But Christ, once again, is the only thing that can save us from our sins. Uh, the second view I want to look at is spiritual presence. <clears throat> In this view, the bread and the wine don't actually become the literal body and blood of Christ. Um, but as Christ invites us to meet him at his table and asks us to commune with him, um, and he meets us there, through the Holy Spirit, we are actually able to commune with the spiritual presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. And that's what this view holds. And the last view that we'll look at is the memorial view. And in this view, the Lord's Supper is only a symbol and that's it. It reminds us of the gospel and what Christ did for us, but nothing happens beyond that spiritually. Um, at the way, we'll actually, we actually hold to a view that's kind of somewhere between the memorial view and the spiritual presence. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul reminds us that Christ tells us to do it in remembrance of him. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Christ obviously calls us to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him, in memory, the memorial view, in memory of what he has done, and to continually you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. However, we recognize here as Christians something more than that. that we recognize that Christ came and he died, but we also recognize that he now lives. That Christ is not dead in the grave. He's not somebody who is not living, but he rules and reigns over our lives still. And with the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are now given the ability and freedom to live a life for Christ in obedience to him as an act of grace that he grants us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That without the Holy Spirit partaking of the Lord's Supper, would be meaningless to us. It wouldn't have any kind of real significance to our lives as Christians. But because Christ lives and because he sent the Holy Spirit into our lives as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are actually living and doing those good works that Ephesians talks about, that those good works that God set aside for us before time. These are some of those things that in his grace he has allowed us to now partake and actually commune with him and remember the fact that he died and he rose again for our death or for our salvation in his death. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are in the presence of the Holy Spirit like we are always. And in partaking of the, the Lord's Supper, we recognize that there is a supper that is to come that is far greater than what we do here that we look back and we recognize that Adam and Eve at one point in time were able to eat and commune and fellowship with God in perfect, perfect holiness. That they were able to 
sit with God and actually eat in His presence. But because of sin, we can't do that anymore. That, that it was, it's impossible for us to commune with God because of our sin. But we partake of the Lord's Supper because we recognize that Christ came and took that penalty and that punishment and our death. And we're now able to come and partake of the Lord's Supper recognizing that we can have at small portions of time whenever you take it a moment to actually fellowship with God and commune at His table. But it's all pointing to the fact that there's a day to come when we're going to actually eat at a table in Jesus' presence. That at the marriage supper of the Lamb that Revelation 19.9 talks about, we're actually going to get to sit and eat with God. That there's a a supper that's to come that's much greater than the supper that we partake here and we, we eat here. The Lord's Supper symbolizes so much more than that, though, for the believer. In the Lord's Supper, we're, we're automatically separating ourselves out from the world because Christ tells us that only those who are saved by Him are to partake of it. So when we are eating the Lord's Supper, when we, when we practice this, we are identifying ourselves as belonging to Jesus and the covenant of God. As we eat of the Lord's Supper, we're able to look around and, and recognize as well that we have unity with the body of Christ. First uh, Corinthians ten seventeen says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We eat of the Lord's Supper, and if you look around when you do, you'll recognize that there's others in this room who have eaten are, and are eating the same supper as you are, and you recognize that you have some kind of connection with them because Jesus has saved them and the Holy Spirit lives in them and they're your brother, your sister in Christ. And you, you're eating dinner with your family. Maybe it's not your um, family with the same last name or your in-laws, but this is a spiritual family that you will eat with forever when you go to heaven. You recognize that these people here that you eat the Lord's Supper with that have been saved are somebody that you can go to and build community with and relationships with and love each other and, and build each other up and be there for each other in times of suffering. The Lord's Supper's a great place to recognize that. The Lord's Supper is also a meal, and it brings with it nourishment. We all need to be fed, and so when we eat food, we recognize that it is actually sustaining part of our body, that if we didn't eat, we would die. I really like to eat, as you can tell. So, I I mean, it's a good thing. Eat. Just don't be a glutton. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not just a meal of food and drink that sustains our physical body, but it is actually something that, that sustains us spiritually. This means, I think, in part, that the Lord's Supper belongs to, in specific, the weak Christian at some level. That no one comes to the table in unblemished worthiness or undiminished strength. That you don't come to your table to eat food. You don't go home and you eat your food because you are perfectly healthy and full and need no food to sustain life. You go to eat because you need it. We come to the table in need. We come to the table fresh from battles with sin, with discouragement, unbelief, and the world. And we need to be fed again. We come to the table, and if you come with some kind of haughtiness or uh, arrogance, thinking that you're just taking it because it's something you do to show that you are almighty Christian, 
the truth is, is that you're taking it with the wrong heart and the wrong motives, that you come to the table recognizing that you need Jesus Christ to sustain you for life, that Jesus is the real food and the real drink that we need for life, that in John, when he talks to the woman at the well and he says that there's a life or there's a well that, that brings everlasting life, he's talking about himself. That in Psalms, when David is, is, is crying out and saying, you know, my soul thirsts for you like a deer panteth for the water, like, uh, like I'm in a dry and, and weary place, that he is screaming out because he needs Jesus to sustain him, to come and fill him up, that he is in desperate and dire need of the one thing that can actually bring something that's worthwhile. And so in Jesus Christ, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we recognize and we receive the sustenance that Christ affords. And we recognize that the benefits of Christ's atoning work for us sinners and weaklings as we come, because He is our strength and He is our rock and He is what fills us up and feeds us and gives us something to drink. And lastly... As we come to the Lord's table, we recognize Christ as the sacrificial lamb for us. That if you look in Matthew 26, when Christ is talking to his disciples, he's actually at the Passover meal. And that the Jews, every year, recognized and celebrated Passover because if you uh, know any of the Bible, if you go back to Exodus, there's a point in time when Moses was trying to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And so as he's leading him out, the, the Pharaoh there over and over again says yes and then no. And because of his no, because God hardens his heart, God then sends a plague. And there is, uh, I'm trying to, I can't remember the number of plagues off the top of my head for some reason. But there's plague after plague after plague ending with eventually the death of the firstborn son. And so Jesus, God tells Moses that if the Israelites want to keep the angel of death away from their home from killing their firstborn son, they needed to go slay a lamb, kill a lamb that was unblemished, that was perfect, without spot, and they would take the blood of that lamb and they'd put it over their doorpost. And if they did that, then the angel of death would pass over them. Hence the term in the meal, the Passover. And so Jesus sitting here at this meal, at the Passover meal, recognizing that there was a time when a lamb was slain to save the people from death, the firstborn from death, the bread and the wine actually in the Passover meal represent that lamb. And they represent the body of that lamb and the blood of that lamb that was broken and shed for them. And so Christ in the Passover meal is then in turn taking those things and telling the disciples, this is no longer the bread that represents the lamb that was slain way back when. And this is no longer the blood that was put over the doorpost but these both represent me who is going to be your ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Passover lamb, who will save you from death and sin and destruction. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says at the end of it, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The disciples, Paul recognized that Christ in, in this meal was portraying himself to be the perfect sacrifice. That that lamb that was slain way back for the, the Israelites back then, was only a foretaste of what was to come, that, that those things don't ultimately take away our sin, but Christ came and he lived a perfect life. He lived with no sin and he died a death in our place for our sin. That Jesus came 
and of no act of your own, nothing that you or I earned from him in his grace and his mercy and his love, he decided to save some of us. That he came and he died to be the perfect lamb without blemish and without spot. And as we come to the Lord's Supper and we partake of the, the juice, or the wine or the bread, we recognize that Jesus Christ is who's represented there, that the gospel is actually being shown in the Lord's Supper, that we recognize all of those things that Jesus has earned for us in the gospel, and we come to it with a humble reverence, recognizing that we need him to sustain us for life.